0: Hello, I'm Mel, and I'm Steph, and this is East Asia for All, a podcast about the East Asian pop culture and media that you love. We're both working on our PhDs
1: in Chinese history, but we also study and teach about East Asia in general. If you're listening right now, you, like us, probably also have an addiction to East Asian pop culture and media.
0: Between the two of us, we've lived on and off in China, Taiwan, and Japan since 2007, So we're taking our love for East Asia, our experiences there, and the knowledge we've gained in the ivory tower, and making it available beyond our classroom walls.
1: Today's podcast is about the life and work of Japanese novelist, singer, political figure, and all-around interesting human being, Nosaka Akiyuki. Nosaka was born in 1930 in Kamakura, outside of Tokyo but his father persuaded his mother to give him to an aunt and uncle in Kobe to be raised. Nosaka was told later on that his biological mother died from complications in childbirth, but she actually died two months after his forced adoption. After the chaos of the war and the deaths and injuries of multiple family members, he was eventually reclaimed by his
0: biological father and went on to attend Waseda University. His experiences in the war became the subject matter of some of his most famous works, and there are two in particular that we're interested in today, Grave of the Fireflies and American Hijiki. Both short stories, both written in 1967, and jointly awarded the prestigious Naoki Sanjugo Prize. Then in 1988, Studio Ghibli, which you may know from films like Spirited Away and My Neighbor Totoro, made an anime film based on Grave of the Fireflies, directed by Takahara Isao. The film was awarded multiple prizes at the 1994 Chicago International Children's Film Festival and was widely praised by critics. Nosaka passed away in December of 2015.
1: Now, if you haven't read any of his short stories or seen the film, we'll give you a quick synopsis.
0: So Grave of the Fireflies is a semi-autobiographical account of Nosaka's life during the end of World War II. It is also, perhaps, the saddest movie I have ever seen, and it is certain that I have never cried harder while watching any other movie, and I saw Titanic as a tween. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the protagonists of Grave of the Fireflies are two children, a 14-year-old boy, Seita, and his 4-year-old sister, Setsuko. Their mother is killed when their city is firebombed, so the two children go to live with a relative in another city. This relative quickly comes to resent taking care of them and doesn't give them as much food as she gives her other family members.
0: Eventually, Seita and Setsuko leave her house and make their own home in a cave by the water that they also have used as an air raid shelter. And while they enjoy being on their own for a while, they quickly run out of food, and Setsuko dies of malnutrition. Seita leaves and takes refuge in a train station, where he also eventually dies alongside other war orphans. You can find an
1: English translation of the short story in a 1978 issue of Japan Quarterly, or watch the film on YouTube, which we'll link in the show notes.
0: Now, Nosaka's American Hijiki strikes a very different tone than Grave of the Fireflies. American Hijiki is set in the 1960s, with the main character Toshio's memories of the U.S. occupation of Japan after the end of World War II. Toshio's wife, Kyoko, and their son
1: visit Hawaii as a vacation, and while they're there, make friends with an American couple, Mr. and Mrs. Higgins. This reminds Toshio of the American soldiers during the occupation, and how he learned a bit of English and played pimp for local girls who wanted to have sex with American soldiers for food and supplies. Toshio's wife Kyoko invites the American couple she befriends to come stay with them in Japan. When they arrive, Toshio finds himself once more playing the pimp for this American man, trying desperately to please the man despite internally loathing the man and himself for this relationship.
0: Toshio takes him out for drinking, tours, and appointments with sex workers to try to please and impress Mr. Higgins, but he finds him difficult to impress. He also discovers that Mr. Higgins served in Japan during the U.S. occupation. Finally, Toshio takes him out to see a live sex show with a Japanese man who is supposed to have a very large penis only for the man to be unable to perform. Toshio empathizes with the performer, since he is about the same age and probably had similar experiences during and after the war, with the same feelings of shame and inferiority associated with Americans that he does. It is a not-so-subtle statement about the emasculation or disempowerment of the Japanese during the U.S. occupation.
1: We're also really excited today because we invited our colleague at UC Santa Cruz, Dr. Alan Christie, to the East Asia for All podcast to lend his expertise and knowledge on Nosaka Akiyuki, Imperial Japan, and the U.S. occupation after World War II. We had a lot of fun doing the research for this episode, although interspersed with periodic sobbing sessions. (laughs) So we hope that you enjoy it, too. Welcome to East Asia for All. Thanks so much for joining us. We're here with Alan Christie today, who's going to talk with us about Nosaka Akiyuki, a writer who I think we all admire. Maybe we could start out by asking Alan to introduce himself and his work a little
2: bit. Sure. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Hi, Melissa. Hello. I'm Alan Christie. I'm uh, an associate professor of history at University of California, Santa Cruz. And I have uh, started a new job as uh, provost of Cowell College. So I'm in the adventure world of uh, administrative stuff as well.
0: <laughs> the adventure world. That's I usually an, how I hear exciting. it. Described.
2: Uh, every, every day, every week is a new adventure, um, a new surprise, fire eaters, things like that. But um, yeah, and I'm a historian of modern Japan. I did uh, my dissertation, my first book on the uh, formation of native ethnography as a kind of uh, discipline. Um, so I called it native ethnography rather than folklore studies to try to emphasize uh, its aspiration towards science. Um and then uh after that I became involved partly through a team teaching exercise with a colleague in the study of war memory. So I've been working on Okinawa uh, in particular, war memory in Okinawa, working on a book now on um redress campaign in Okinawa that was begun in the late 1980s around a malaria epidemic that happened in some of the outer okinawan islands in 1945 so it's a project that has to do with memory with the politics of redress but also science the state disease environment and whatnot so that's the stuff that i work on
1: great thanks and you also i worked on a class with you specifically on world war ii memories correct with alice yang also in the the history department here um maybe you could talk a little bit about that
2: sure So yes, this class, I think Alice and I began team teaching this class around 1998 or 1999. Alice is a historian of 20th century U.S., particularly Asian American history. And she had written a book on Japanese-American internment and the redress campaign. Particularly historical memory is her her primary issue. How did Japanese-Americans, from varieties of of experiences, perspectives, generations, etc., Remember the internment experience and um, deploy that memory in the political campaign for redress and which kinds of uh, campaigns were more or less successful than each other, etc. So, Alice approached me around 98 or so with uh, the proposal to team teach a class on how World War II was remembered in the US and Japan. And, you know, we began with conversations about this that uh, led us to think this would be an interesting class to do, in part because. One of the things that we found in our conversations was that, you know, the, I think most people think that because Japan and the U.S. were adversaries in the war, that the memories of the war would continue to be adversarial, right? That if you had a, a dominant framework for memory in the United States, then the, the framework in Japan would be the opposite side. And in fact, what we found is, that, you know, it's, it's much more complex. There are far more convergences or there are convergences in places that you wouldn't quite expect them to be. And so this is uh, something that we've been bringing to the classroom now for fifteen years or so, and we've tried to expand it also in the course of the time that we've been doing the class to make sure that we're also bringing in, to the degree that we can, um, memories uh, of the war in China, Korea, the Philippines, the uh, Micronesian Islands, uh, the Marshall Islands, etc. I'm sorry, the Saipan and whatnot. So. You know, one of the big issues that we have in that class, therefore, with particularly with the, the addition of all of these, is is the question of to what degree do memories over time change, but also cross linguistic, cultural, national boundaries? Do Japanese memories become part of American memories? Uh, you know, how do, you know, memory debates between, say, China and Japan begin to transform how things are remembered in either society and whatnot? So particularly interested in that linguistic boundary cultural boundary, political boundary, movement of ideas and, and memories. That's one of the big things that we're, that we're always interested in, in the class.
0: Well, I think that memories of World War II or the Pacific War in Japan is going to be a large part of what we're going to talk about today. And also, the first time that I read any of Nosaka Akiyuki's writings was in one of your classes, one of your graduate classes. And when we were in that class, you we had read American Hijiki and you were telling us about Grave of the Fireflies, which is originally a short story by him, but then also made into the animated film that we're going to be talking about. And I hadn't seen it at the time. And you told us a sadly funny, funnily right. sad <laughs> anecdote about putting on that film. I was wondering if you could sure, share that with sure, us. Okay. Sure, yeah, sure. <laughs> <no, it's>,
2: <laughs> it is funny in retrospect. So um, my partner, Noriko Aso, uh, was teaching at the time a class on um, popular culture in Japan. She'd been doing it for a couple of years. It was a lower division class. Lots of people in there who enjoy that that stuff. And this particular year that she was scheduled to teach, it was the spring. And she was uh, pregnant with our second child. And the the goal of the what I call the academic conception calendar is to get the kid born in the summer so you can finish your spring classes. And <laughs> we missed. And it was uh, clear that she was uh, not going to be able to finish off the quarter. So she designed the class so that the last three or four weeks of the class, I could teach it. And she had uh, the focus be on World War II memories. And in the course of that, she assigned me the task of, of showing them and, and teaching them Grave of the Fireflies. So on the particular day of, of showing Grave of the Fireflies, I get up there to introduce them to the movie. And I'm talking to them a little bit about Nosaka Akuki and his, uh, his story. And I say, the, the movie is terribly sad, uh, and it's based on the author's life, but I'm afraid to say that. The author's real story is even sadder than the movie that you're about to watch, so I start to give them a sense of what that sad backstory of nosaka's own experience was. And as I'm telling this story, I'm thinking of my three-year-old son and the soon-to-be-born son still in utero, and I start to lose it, and so my first my voice cracks, <laughs> and I'm, I'm doing that you know male thing of trying to suppress the tears and whatnot and finally I just give in and I start the tears start flowing and I start blubbering <laughs> just and uh I eventually said to the students you know you're on your own I hit the <laughs> I hit the play button I walked out of the room I think I had a TA in the class I can't remember who it was and I just looked at her like you you're gonna have to take this class to the end because I can't be here for a while after that people would say oh yeah Alan I hear you cried in class and said yes so it was something that got around a little bit but I was thinking about how susceptible I was to the story now that I was a parent, you know, and I thought about the younger me who fancied himself to be a little bit more hard, hard bitten, maybe not, not a fan of sentimentality. And, and yet this sort of like uh, the girl with the white flag, which is another terribly sad story about a childhood experience in the battlefield. Um, Now, when I encounter those things and, and even encountering them multiple times, I still tend to, have a pretty rough emotional time because it's hard not to picture your own children in that situation and it's worse to picture for me the children in that situation than my own self right that's that's uh that's what hurts me about these stories
0: (laughs) where we of course are talking about a story in which both of the children die and it's actually even more sad i think if you know the actual backstory so i don't know if we should just go ahead and and break that to our audience now (laughs) right um what actually happened with in Nosaka's actual life? Yeah.
1: Right. Well, we explained this a little bit in the intro, but by the time that the war you know, started, Nosaka was already living with his adoptive parents, who, one of whom passed away um, in the firebombing, which is depicted in the, the earlier part of the film, right, at the beginning. And his adoptive mother was also badly injured. Basically, he ends up taking care of his, his 16th-month-old adopted sister.
2: And Nosok himself at that time was 14. Yes. He's being called upon to act more maturely than he's probably prepared to be.
1: Absolutely. And you know, in the story, they kind of disappear into this cave um, to go live on their own, which actually I am pretty sure is not what happens. They don't do that. But in the course of trying to take care of her, he, uh, while she is crying, hits her. She uh, suffers a concussion and she later on dies from malnutrition. But it's very clear from his, his writing and then also in the, you know, the anime, there's a lot of guilt associated with his um, failure of care if you will although I don't know how we can fault a 14 year
0: old for for not knowing how to take care of such a young child right and he also talks about wanting to when he found food feeling like he wanted to give it to her and he wanted to feed her but he himself was so hungry that he just couldn't him- help himself from eating the food yeah
1: just couldn't control himself yeah
0: Well, let's move back maybe and talk a little bit more analytically, Um, (laughs) separate ourselves from this and talk about the choice to animate the story when it was brought to the big screen. And I think the earliest iteration in sort of the 1988 Studio Ghibli film, the symbolism of the film and how it fits into sort of a larger Japanese literary and theatrical tradition.
1: Yeah, so this choice of animation for such a kind of heavy topic is is really interesting. But Nosaka himself, when talking in an interview with the director, Takahata, from Studio Ghibli, said that he felt it could only have been done with animation, which I thought was really interesting. Um, And Takahata also talked about how difficult, even though animation was a great medium through which to explore the story, but it was also really difficult working with younger animators that hadn't lived through that moment and portraying really kind of small things about lighting restrictions, rationing, taped up windows so glass wouldn't go flying
0: during um, explosions, neighborhood programs, that sort of thing. Yeah, and in an article, uh, Susan Napier examines representations of the Second World War defeat in animation, and she focuses on other works, more futuristic sci-fi type anime, which incorporate historical remembrances of World War II, Um, but she does mention Grave of the Fireflies as well as Barefoot Gen as, quote, faithful recreations or rememorations of cataclysmic events such as the final days of the war. End quote. So I don't know, Alan, if you have anything you want to talk about the way that animation is used to represent historical memories in Japan and the way that Grave of the Fireflies fits into any of that?
2: For starting with Grave of the Fireflies, the reason that I do think anime is a particularly powerful way to do this film has to do particularly with the, the firefly uh, idea, right? And of course, uh, what uh, Nosaka did in naming this uh, Hotaru no Haka is that he didn't use the standard character for Firefly, uh, for Hotaru. He instead created a sort of neologism that was flame and falling, which pronounced in a certain way would, would sound like Firefly, but when you read it, it looks like the grave of falling fire. So if you imagine trying to do that kind of light that is suspended in air, and is moving up and down on live-action film, particularly thinking about when the film was made. You're looking at a technical problem of enormous dimensions, right? And yet anime is is a medium that makes it really possible to play with light like that in a way that is so difficult otherwise. And of course, the fireflies are themselves, as, as, as light is concerned, is a kind of ethereal light. It flickers on and off. It, it can have a predictable rhythm to it, but it's otherwise... You know, there's a description in the short story of, of Seta gathering as many fireflies. When they've moved into the cave, they put up a mosquito netting and it's really, really dark in there. And they discover that even though they feel safe in there, the darkness is too much for them. So he catches as many fireflies as he can. And he talks about trying to catch about 100 fireflies. And he, he sort of releases them into the net so that they're trapped in there on the net. And he says that we, ha- we had the light, but it wasn't sufficient light to see each other right So in that sense again, that kind of light is so hard to do on film and something that you could do on anime and that kind of light also then really evokes the ghostliness things because of course this is narrated by a dead boy talking about his dead sister when they're both both alive. So it's hard I understand what they're saying about it being difficult to do in that sense. I think from what I understand and a lot of this comes from uh, what I've learned from Tom Thomas Lamar who who gave an interesting talk about Barefoot Gen a little while ago Grave of the Fireflies is anime and Barefoot Gen as both manga and then anime strike me as having slightly different things going on in terms of drawing versus filmic representation. I think, uh, if I'm remembering Thomas correctly, the the kind of plasticity of what's going on in Barefoot Gen, which has to do with both explosiveness and the melting bodies, the emergence of monsters, you know, the monstrous human form and whatnot is so key to what's going on in Barefoot Gen, right? The blast effects and all that kind of stuff. Whereas what you're getting in Grave of the Fireflies is really much more a kind of, the, the word pathetic will sound too small, right? But it's, you're dealing with the emotional trauma is particularly about the children. And so, you know, the simplification of form that you can get in anime, which also is how I think we see children's faces, right? As we grow up, our faces become more complex, but children have the big eyes, the simple nose, right? So anime, you could do that in film, of course, but anime can accentuate that, which again, I think raises to more power for the viewer that... Vulnerability of children, the innocence of children, and whatnot, and so you just look at these kids, and you know, you look at little Setsuko in in the movie, and you know, knowing where, what's going to be happening, it breaks your heart just by the the simplicity of line does with her. That those are my takes on why anime works for this. And of course, you know, I mean, I grew up a Bugs Bunny consumer. So for me, <laughs> cartoons were always funny, <laughs> you know, encountering anime as a vehicle for, for delivering something of a very different emotional register, or a def- a very different kind of intellectual agenda was, you know, was very new for me. And I'm of an age when, you know, the only Japanese animation we got was Speed Racer and um, Kimbo the White Lion, which, and not to say those aren't, I mean, Speed racer is not that complex, but <laughs> <laughs> I I wasn't introduced to this dimension of things until college.
1: But I think my understanding is that it is also intended to appeal to children and to have children identify with it True. Um, and that it was... Part of that complexity, right, is how it appeals across all ages and how, especially in Japan, as an educational tool, children, I think, are supposed to identify in particular with Seita. And uh, it's very compelling. The format or medium, even more so, makes right. it makes it compelling, I think.
2: Remind me, to my embarrassment, what year the the anime came out? Was it 80, 88, I 88, think? 88, 89? Yeah. yeah. So, of course, we're talking, if it's coming out 88, 89, then the film you know the anime project is being conceived around 84 85 let's say probably right which is the 40th anniversary and i was there in japan in in 83 84 85 86 and uh you know it was this moment when people were thinking out loud that the gap in time between the war and the present was now spanning two generations if a generation is counted in 20 years What I really recall at the time was a lot of discussion about, will the younger generation understand? So a peace movement in Japan at the time, or or the general inclination toward uh, sustaining the peace constitution and whatnot, really shifted perhaps much more consciously in the 80s to the responsibility to communicate to a next generation. Right, Whereas in earlier times it would be, you know, we have to fight the state <laughs> from re- reimposing the stuff on us again. So, you know, the 1980s was, was clearly, and of course, coming out in 1989, 1989 was such a pivotal year in so many ways in, in Japan as well, although they couldn't have predicted that the emperor was going to die then when they started it. So you're right. I mean, bringing it up as the intended audience is very much children in the sense which is
0: quite different than the original story, which was written, if we're counting generations, one generation after the war ended, but one generation before the film came out. Right. Which really changes, I think, the audience and the tone in some ways between the story and the movie.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, the book is very much written to other people of Nosaka's age. His audience is, his contemporaries, and they are at this point in their late 30s uh, and reflecting on that
0: So you've already done this a little bit, but I think we wanted to talk about the very many things that the fireflies represent Mm -hmm. in this film, especially knowing the etymology and the way that it was changed for the movie, I think maybe makes that a little bit more clear. In an article by Wendy Goldberg, she talks about the many things that the fireflies are meant to represent. It's sort of these children whose lives are lost all of the lives who are lost. They also represent the firebombings themselves, the suffering of the wartime. Stephanie or Alan, if you want to add anything about that. I was just going to say that before I read the Goldberg
1: article, of course, I I knew that the fireflies were very symbolic, but I hadn't really thought about them in the context of firebombing, which I suppose is rather silly. It's kind of, it's glaring reference to that. But I think the fact that we don't really talk about the firebombing that happened during World War II by the U.S. and Japan nearly as much as we talk about dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I think that that is very significant. And even compared to other, we talked about Barefoot Gen, right? Which is about the atomic bomb in Hiroshima, right? I thought that that was very important and something that I really um, appreciated in terms of connections uh, across uh, fireflies as symbols in the film.
2: Right, right. And that's, uh, again, when I think about the fireflies you know the key thing to thinking about the anime it's uh, also because many of the drawings that i've seen of survivors of the fire bombings but also their descriptions it sounds like fire falling from the sky you picture these drops on on fire and of course often what's really happening is it's these small canisters that have the jelly gas in them and that that come drop and they'll spark in some way and, and so the flames are jumping off of those things but but the flames are in the sky as well and it's so interesting when you when you cross the cultural boundaries right the role that firebombing will play in structuring memories of the war in Japan versus the war in the United States a really common thing that i hear in the United States is people if you bring up the atomic bomb oftentimes people will say yeah that was bad and more people died in the firebombings of Tokyo and it's this and, ambiguous statement to me often because on the one hand it makes it sound like the atomic bomb was less bad than it was and i usually have to remind people that when the firebombing stopped it stopped <laughs> but when when the atomic bomb blew up you know the survivors carry with them the potential for you know what the, they call the bomb inside them you know who knows when some kind of uh, radiation derived illness is going to strike them again so for them the bombing never ends and are people, when they bring up the, in the United States, when they bring up, say, the firebombing of Tokyo or Osaka or whatnot, are they are they really talking about the cruelty of war, or are they doing something else? I'm not sure. The firebombing in Japan is so interestingly different. And there's a there's a park in Tokyo. I don't know if I've ever told you about this park, and I wish I could remember the name right now. It's right by the National Sumo Stadium near a section of town called Yogoku. It's got a specific name. This is a part where in the 1923 earthquake, this is in a part of what was Shitamachi Tokyo. And, and so Shitamachi is the part of Tokyo that burnt the most in the earthquake in 1923. And so you had a, about 100,000 deaths in the 1923 earthquake. This, this particular park in Tokyo was one of these places where people were fleeing the flames. And in the course of fleeing the flames, they gathered in this park, but the flames built into a firestorm of the dimensions that you usually picture in Dresden. And, you know, when people talk about those kinds of things in the fire bombings and essentially 40,000 people were extinguished in a flash in this, in this park, having sought refuge there. And uh, so this, this park is a scene of mass death from 1923. And in 1930-ish, they built a memorial park. There's a, a temple there, and there's this, uh, a tower that's an ossuary. It's got many, many shelves of large uh, ceramic jars that are filled with bones that were collected in the gar- in that park. And it's not a big park, by the way. I mean, getting that many people in there must have been. Anyway, the firebombing of Tokyo happens in 1945. Many people die in that place again. And in the post-war years, and here I wish I could go back to exactly the date, they added into that park now a whole bunch more memory objects to commemorate the firebombing as well. So the park now does double duty, once as a park to commemorate the deaths by fire in the earthquake and then once to commemorate deaths by fire in the firebombing. But what happens in that so interestingly is that the American agency in dropping the firebombs gets really attenuated. It, It almost disappears. In fact, when I was there in 19, no, what was it, 2005, I went to, uh, to the park on, on March 10th. And somebody had gone into in front of some of the markers that were up there, you know, commemorating the deaths of the people from this neighborhood kind of thing. And they put a piece of paper, a uh, white paper that they written, you know, nice calligraphy on the ground that reminded viewers that the deaths by fire were caused by American bombs as if that kind of statement by somebody had to be brought in with this temporary piece of paper, right? So what's really striking to me about that park is the way that it just becomes death by fire, and death by fire is sort of like rain. It just falls, or it comes from somewhere else. And so as a memorial park for the war, it's really weird to me. You know, it's not a place where you're remembering the war as the context of these deaths. It's like another natural disaster uh, on a mass scale. Osaka has a museum called the Osaka Peace Center that is um, pays much more attention to the firebombing. But the firebombing memories in Japan are there, but there's not a lot of places to go commemorate that. I may be misspeaking, but in the times in my years in Japan, it's not the kind of thing that you immediately encounter in many places. Not the way, of course, that Hiroshima and Nagasaki have really transformed themselves to be that experience. So that's one of the things that makes, again, Grave of the Fireflies an interesting piece. And whether Nosaka is writing this both to assuage his own guilt, but also as a kind of statement about, do we even talk about the firebombing at this point in time? It's, you know, it's not clear to me, Um, but it's one of the ways that the story can be used, right? Is Is to draw a different kind of attention to the firebombing.
0: Which in the film, I think you assume that it's Americans dropping it, but I don't even know that that's really said or dwelt on at all.
2: Yeah. And that's one of the ways that I, again, I suspect that, you know, when Alice and I are thinking about convergences, right? So the idea that you can remember things in Japan these days, if you can, frame it within a narrative of a U.S.-Japan alliance, right? So you you go to Hiroshima, and for example, a few years ago, there was some vandalism of the central cenotaph in the middle of the park, which has which holds the books that list the names of all the dead. And on the outside of the cenotaph is written, you know, we will remember so that so that this mistake will never happen again. And somebody scrawled on this, carved on the stone to, to damage the stone. You know, what was this mistake? You know, it's a, a kind of statement that says this didn't just happen. Somebody did this. You know, the agency of the act disappeared from there. And and you know, I don't want this to be an ironclad law in any way, but it does seem to me that so many of the the postwar memories of Japan that one sees are easiest to consume if you can put it in a framework that allows the U.S.-Japan alliance to continue. And if I just give one other example, if you've seen letters from Iwo Jima, I think it's a great example of that because all of the you know, it's it's told entirely from the Japanese perspective, but all the Japanese that we identify with and sympathize with are kind of American yeah Kuribayashi spends time in America we see him spending time in America Baron Nishi you know used to hang out with Douglas Fairbanks and rode in the rode equestrian events in the Los Angeles Olympics and those are the, so, and and Kuribayashi fights like an American he doesn't want everybody to go out and the you know in the final bonsai charge and waste their lives but we have to fight this rationally and whatnot so it's as if what we can remember of the Japanese is only what we can remember via an American frame for this stuff And that's one of the interesting things, getting back to Nosaka about his work, because he has a hard relationship with with the Americans, right?
1: Right. And that, like you said, Mel, and we're talking about now, it doesn't come out as explicitly in Grave of the Fireflies, but it definitely does in American Hijiki. And wrestling with the complexity of those feelings, um, which is so difficult for Toshio and it seems less difficult for his wife, is really the central struggle
0: in that story. So maybe we should transition to talking about American Hijiki. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about with Grave of the Fireflies, but uh, maybe we can talk about the aftermath of the war in Japan through the lens of American Hijiki. So maybe I was thinking first we should just say, what is American Hijiki and what meaning does that carry for the story? Because it doesn't I mean, I feel like any American hearing that is going to have no idea what that title means or what it is. Right.
2: Who knows what the word hijiki means, right?
0: The people in the story are similarly confused. What is this American hijiki? Right. It's an
1: incredibly clever title once you read on in the short story because hijiki is kind of seaweed, right? Mm -hmm. Edible seaweed. And basically what happens in the story is these supplies drop from the sky from the Americans and when they're collected they have this these little tins of black shriveled up what are assumed to be hijiki for consumption and actually they are tea black tea and inedible obviously and very disgusting and no matter how much Nosaka <laughs> or his family members try they cannot figure out how to eat this American hijiki and it is a really fantastic note to kind of begin and on title it's
2: yeah i haven't read reread the story lately it's sitting right here by my right elbow now i thought about trying to read it last night but the complete lack of nutrition in the american food that's supplied to them in the starvation years in the story is striking right it's hijiki which is actually tea which of course hijiki does come in a dried form that looks a lot like tea And they boil it and they throw away the water (laughs) because it's not supposed to be this brown. And then they're sitting there munching on this, you know, horrible tea leaf, bitter (laughs) stuff. And then otherwise it's all about getting chewing gum, which again is like that does, it gives you no sustenance, right? You chew it, you spit it out.
1: And the really, the really striking scene of the chewing gum wrappers just kind of like tumbleweeds kind of blowing (laughs) all over because they're chewing and chewing and chewing and just trying to make this hunger go away. Right,
2: right. So, you know, in the context in which, you know, there is a narrative of the United States first having defeated Japan and then having rescued Japan, provided them with supplies parachuted in from above before the, the forces actually landed. Uh, and then, you know, soldiers famously being very popular with young kids because they're distributing chocolate and chewing gum, right? You know, these are the kinds of images that we have of that remarkable shift from what John Dower calls that war without mercy to this alliance that seems so tight and so intimate. And what Nosaka does with the story is he he turns that rescue into this into this non-nutritious, non-sustaining kind of relationship. It's really a clever, as you say, it's a clever device to do this rethinking with.
0: And those that are able to get sustenance, nutrition, actually usable supplies, all of at least the characters in this story, they're all young women who sell sex to the American soldiers, and that's the only way they manage to get access to usable, nutritious, real supplies. Right, right. Which brings us to, I think, one of the central themes of this story, which is the emasculation of Japanese men at this time and the inferiority complex that the character Toshio and other men felt in large part because of this accessibility of Japanese women to the American men. And so I think we want to talk a little bit about why the Japanese, especially Japanese men, many of them felt so humiliated by the American occupation and how that carried into the post-war years. Or post occupation years, I should say.
2: Right. Th- this is where, it, again, I think uh, it's really important to locate Nosaka as somebody born in 1930. So the war ends and he's 15. So you start by thinking, it, so, you know, there's another generation that's older than Nosaka that, that produces some very distinctive literature in the post war years um, that Yoshikuni Igarashi, for example, describes as literature of the flesh. And these are people who, who write pornographic, sometimes erotic fiction. I, I hesitate to use the word erotic because the the sex in it is often violent and really unpleasant. but for these the literature of the flesh generation, there was this feeling that they had sacrificed endlessly. The state is constantly calling on on them to sacrifice this, that and the other thing. and one of the things that they're ultimately sacrificing is, all bodily needs and and desires. So the literature of the flesh, this this pornographic literature that emerges in the in the nineteen forties to to great sales, is reasserting the primacy of the body and of sexual desire as a way of resisting the state. But Nosaka comes of age in nineteen you know in nineteen forty five. He's fifteen years old. He's not likely to be have been sexually active yet, or sex if he is sex is not a key part of his identity yet, right? So he's instead an adolescent who's trying to acquire a masculine, you know, an adult masculine identity. I think that's, for me, one of the really important things about interpreting the story as a very generational story as opposed to necessarily an overall, here's the difference between men and women, even though Toshio kind of sees it that way. He can't understand why his wife can deal with these people, right?
1: Right. Yeah, that gender difference definitely, it it seems, exists very starkly in the story, but this generational issue, I think, is really key to understanding what's going on here. And so this might be a good time to talk a little bit about the generation that Nosaka belongs to and what shaped them. In an article by Roman Rosenbaum, he talks about this generation that he says were born in the uh, during the war and grew up and kind of came of age at the end, like you said. And they experienced fire bombings, atomic bombings, and these kind of horrors firsthand. And he calls this generation the Yakeyato generation. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, Alan, and kind of what their I think you've already said a little bit about, you know, how the differences in the writing style from older generation um, to this other generation, but maybe also maybe politically in terms of activism and kind of action, what their foremost goals were.
2: Right. This this generation from 15 is early high school. So you could you could knock it, pull it back even like eight years or so to seven, seven year olds or so. This is the generation that has that, uh, what I sometimes call the primal scene of, to borrow Freud, <laughs> of, of post-war Japan. Their primal scene is striking out passages from textbooks in school. You know, so sitting that, this, you see this in, in that movie, MacArthur's Children, by the director, who I'm ashamed to remember say I can't remember his name. We can insert later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> insert here. Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> we can put it on the website. It'll be in the show notes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this director did a series of films of his post-war experience and macarthur's children is the first one and it opens up with the kids in the in the schoolyard listening to the emperor's announcement that none of them can understand and and then it the next scene after the titles which are you know glenn miller's music uh, and all these pictures of macarthur and his grandiosity shifts immediately to the classroom and the teachers instructing them how to strike things out of the Textbooks, these things, we're no longer to say these sentences. We're no longer to say these sentences. And so for these kids, this is the moment in which authority is completely undermined. They've had these teachers telling them this is fact all along. And then suddenly, with the change of a day, They're in there being told all this stuff in the textbook, it's not true anymore, or we're not gonna talk about it anymore. So so it's a deeply the primal scene, you know, in Freud is when you discover that your parents have sex sometimes by walking in on them and it's like, uh oh. (laughs) What's this right? (laughs) They're not what I thought they were, right? And that's what this scene is. These teachers, I I, they're not what I thought they were. There's a collection of of uh, cartoons. Usually, sort of one-panel things uh, done by a number of manga artists uh, called August Fifteenth that I have in my office that has them all drawing their August Fifteenth, and a lot of them are in the context of school. And one of the ones that really sticks in my mind is the kids all sitting there in their desks, and the teacher is down and all in down on hands and knees apologizing to them. So imagine being 12 years old and experiencing this kind of thing, 15 years old, the authority figures who have driven you to these, to these experiences of utter extremity and who, because you're 12 and 15 years old, you do what they say, right? You, you don't, you're not really most of you questioning that authority. Suddenly the whole authority structure comes crumbling in front of you, comes crumbling down, you know? So that's another way in which not just, you know, the difference between the literature, the flesh generation being already sexually experienced versus this group, but this group doesn't, you know, has had authority wiped off the face of earth in the most capricious manner, more capricious than any other generation has, has experienced. And I think that is a key thing to understanding, you know, lots of things about that generation and, you know, Nosaka's own Really wild career as a songwriter, as a television script writer as a commercial writer, as a guy who crooner. actually a yeah, crooner, <laughs> exactly. You know, political figure. Yeah. I was trying to think to myself this morning: Is he like Leonard Cohen? No, because Leonard Cohen, uh, you know, always was kind of classy, and you know, Nosaka, Nosaka would run the gamut.
1: Those sunglasses are classy, though. That's the thing. Those sunglasses he's constantly wearing. Yeah.
2: As you know, I mean, in, in China as well, I'm sure, um, particularly in those days, sun, in the 70s, sunglasses were not a respectable accoutrement to wear, right? It was a sign of un- unrespectability. And so, you know, that Nosei would wear that and he'd wear those white suits, and the hats and whatnot. I mean, this is, this is somebody who clearly has trouble with authority and who is really willing through, in all the dimensions of his life, I mean, his first novel is called The Pornographers. So um, this is a guy who all his life wants to flaunt convention, respectability and whatnot because uh, it crumbled before his eyes.
1: Yeah, I think that's actually a really good setup for thinking about this shift that I think that we're kind of marking from, or maybe not even a shift, but maybe just differences of opinion, but across generations, um, and this kind of victim consciousness versus victimizer consciousness. Um, I'm thinking about Hiroko Cockrell's article, Laughter and Tears, about Nosaka, where she talks about this victimizer consciousness and how, quote, in accusing himself, Nosaka by implication accuses his society and and the Japanese government who put him in the situation of having to leave others to die in order to survive. And I think that this is really key in understanding the complexity of Grave of the Fireflies, of American Hijiki as really attacking that nationalistic, patriotic requirement of that period and the way that that generation thought about that in retrospect.
2: As we were saying at the very beginning, the tragic thing about Grave of the Fireflies is the gap between the actions of Seta and the story just doing everything he can to keep his sister alive to the point where he's fantasizing I could cut my finger and she could drink the blood and maybe that would help or maybe just cut off one finger who needs that and that meat might keep her alive a little bit longer to the actual knowledge that he has that he at times you know in real life did not share food with her. And of course, there's, that, there's this great moment toward the end of the story when the subject of the sentences shifts and the story is being told about Seta as a third person, but it's moving back and forth and it shifts as he's remembering the abundance they had before the war and how he had at times Chosen not to eat that because he didn't think it was tasty or whatnot, and then he shifts to this one paragraph and it goes into the I, without having quotation marks in it, where I stole things from her, and it's that's one of the heartbreaking points in the in the piece because of course he is accusing himself, and the thing that made me cry when I was telling the students about this was this was the the point when my voice broke and may do it again now, is he's so racked by guilt, but what he did to his sister and how he survived that when he writes a story to to comfort himself the most comforting thing he can imagine is him dying as well not that she lives but that he shares her death that would have been a comfort to him and that's the thing that was so heartbreaking and so you're right uh, of course what we see is a careless you know a, a heartless aunt who essentially in the story drives them out and people in this train station who walk past this dying boy and nobody's got anything to to give to him farmers who chase him out of the fields for stealing a cucumber the size of a 15-year-old's pinky, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, in terms of he's a victim, but it's a victim consciousness that we always talk about in classes, you know, victims and victimizers are not as easily separable as you want. And in Osaka's work, it's clear, right? In American Hijiki, Toshio is clearly a victim, and he's also (laughs) a victimizer. Especially of women. Especially of women.
1: Yeah, not a lovable guy in the story.
2: Not at all. I think that's a really important thing that, that uh, Cockerell has brought out and that, that you brought up as well. Is Because this is the thing, right? The simple criticism of Japan in the post-war years is they think of themselves as victims and they forget about what they did to everybody else. Yeah, every now and then someone who says, hello, China, or hello, Korea, Philippines, and whatnot. And so the question is, you know, what is the nature of this victimized victim consciousness and uh, is it something to be battled against? And uh, Nosaka provides a very distinct voice in that.
1: Well, and I think it's interesting too because you see hints of the variation across different classes or people in Japan in experiencing that and how, because obviously, Nosaka feels like even though there's a return to, quote, normal life, he feels like he can't return to normal life. He f- feels as though he will never be returned to no- able to return to normal life. But, you know, in that, those last scenes of... Grave of the Fireflies, where there's that family returning home and talking about home sweet home and putting on a record. And then also in American Hijiki, with that difference between Toshio and his wife being able to interact with Americans, you see that there's a range of experiences and Nosaka himself is struggling to move on.
2: And that's the again getting into in American Hijiki. One of the things that blows his mind is that you know when the Higgins is upset, his wife, his wife just you know cuts it. That's it. You're gone. And he's like, how can you? Do? He can't believe that she's bringing them into their lives. And then when she cuts them out, it's, it strikes him with this utter ease as well. And he can't get this person out of him. Right. And he's stuck.
0: This is what he has wanted to do the entire time. Exactly. But still, somehow, is finding himself doing the opposite.
2: Exactly. Exactly. There is no normal life for him to return to. And that, you know, this is one of the things that I think would be in many ways why Nosaka is one of the most interesting people to think about what war means with students, precisely because, you know, because he's in that generational slot that allows him to really have to confront these things in ways that many others seem not to have, you know, he and others of his cohort.
0: That might be a good note to end on. Yeah, I think so. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Alan. We really appreciate this. My pleasure. In wrapping up, we want to say a few words about our sponsors. We're a new podcast funded generously by the American Councils for International Education Critical Language Scholarship Alumni Development Program and the Phillips Ambassadors Alumni Award at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill.
1: If you like our podcast, You could really help us out by telling others about the podcast and leaving a review on iTunes.
0: You can follow us on Twitter
1: at EastAsiaForAll or visit our website, EastAsiaForAll.com, for show notes and more information about the podcast. We're lucky that we don't need funding or donations right now, but we could use your support in getting the word out. Thanks.